Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the rise of Christian nationalism, dominionism, and the new apostolic reformation movements, who have found a champion in the heathen Donald Trump, who last week, in his at times incoherent address to the national religious broadcasters, promised to create a task force to counter anti-Christian bias while demonizing his opposition, saying, quote, it's the people from within our country that are more dangerous than the people outside. Joining us is Catherine Stewart, a journalist who is the author of The Good News Club, The Christian Right Stealth Assault on America's Children, and her latest book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, upon which the new feature documentary God and Country by Rob Reiner is based. Then we'll look into today's Supreme Court hearing on Net Choice versus Paxton, at which the justices seem open to the challenge from big tech companies, Facebook, Google and Twitter, to the Texas and Florida laws aimed at regulating their social media content. Joining us is Jonathan Taplin, an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, who has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Wim Wenders, Gus Van Sant, and many others. He's the founder of The Entertainer, the first streaming video-on-demand platform, and currently sits on the boards of the Authors Guild, Americana Music Association, and has produced 12 films including Mean Streets, The Last Waltz, Under Fire, and To Die For. He's the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy, and his latest book is The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. Then finally we'll look into the recent gathering in Miami of powerful leaders, investors, and celebrities sucking up to the head of the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, who doles out $70 billion per year to obsequious panderers like Jared Kushner and Steve Mnuchin. Joining us to discuss the whitewashing of Saudi's murderous crown prince by Larry Summers, Eric Smith, Gwyneth Paltrow, Rob Lowe, etc., is Savag Kashishian, who is a senior researcher at Democracy for the Arab World Now, with more than 20 years of experience in designing and executing research projects, including on human rights in Gulf countries. He was previously Amnesty International's lead researcher on Saudi Arabia, and he worked on human rights violations in Yemen, Qatar, and Oman. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep Background Briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Catherine Stewart, a journalist whose recent work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic and The Guardian. She's the author of The Good News Club, The Christian Right Stealth Assault on America's Children. And her latest book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And The Power Worshippers are the basis of the new feature documentary by Rob Reiner, God and Country. Welcome to Background Briefing, Catherine Stewart. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Catherine. And since we last spoke, 
the religious nationalists, uh, Christian nationalists uh, or dominionists have their man as the speaker, which is uh, what the third highest position in the US government. So things have changed and we've had a recent example of <laughs> the limits, if you will, or the insanity of, of Christian nationalism with the judge, the chief justice in Alabama, who ruled that uh, frozen embryos were children. And that, of course, is to some extent blown up in the Republicans' face. But this is a serious challenge. And one of the things that just happened last week was Trump's address to the uh, religious broadcasters, at which he made an incredibly theocratic speech. He also made no sense. For a while there, he spoke gibberish. If Biden had done the same thing, it would be in headlines across the country. So let's start with that double standard. Why is it that Trump can make a, a speech to uh, a public speech to the religious broadcasters and talk about snakes and weird stuff, and nobody in the press points this out? But if Biden makes a simple gaffe, they're all over it. That's true. Well, listen, Trump has blown through so many of the guardrails of democracy. He's uh, broken so many of the norms uh, of our democracy, and he wants to break its institutions as well. He says a lot of absurd stuff. I think the most absurd thing that he said at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention is that he cast the election, the 2024 presidential election, as a war against Christians. Now, this is especially absurd because so many Christians are Democrats or moderates or independents, but it shows that Christian nationalism is really a mindset more than it's any doctrine or policy program. Key elements of that mindset are that Christians are under intense persecution, that they're the most conservative Christians, I should say, are the most persecuted group in society. They don't include uh, progressive or moderate Christians in that category. They're not the right kind of Christians. And that they also say the enemy are fellow Americans. They say, Trump says this, he said, the greatest enemy that we face is, I'm paraphrasing here, he says it's the internal enemy, not the uh, foreign enemies. And um, and they they also push this fiction that anyone to the left of them are these secular, radical, leftist, elitist intellectuals that represent an existential threat to the country. Now, these are the exact buttons that Trump pushed in his speech, and they're not religious buttons, Ian. They have nothing to do with the way that most American Christians understand Christianity. But the fact that he's the one articulating these ideas should should make that pretty obvious. He's using this idea of religious nationalism to divide Americans between the, the good ones and the bad ones, the pure versus the impure. You're with us or you're against us. And this is a classic tool of authoritarians, uh, frankly, throughout history and around the world. But the ties between Trump and Mike Johnson are pretty evident. And it appears that Mike Johnson takes his orders or his cues from Trump, particularly over aid to Ukraine. What explains that in the sense that you have this pious, well, he's a religious fanatic, really, and he's obsessed with homosexuality. Um, and, he, and he was asked early on, once he, when he became the speaker, uh, you know, what motivated his politics? And he just said, open the Bible. So uh, that's, that's who this guy is. So what's the connection between him and this heathen Trump? Well, interestingly, Mike Johnson built his career in the Christian nationalist movement. He served for many years uh, to assist 
uh, groups that believe in uh, young earth creationism, like the Creation Museum. He was working with the Alliance Defending Freedom, one of the sort of legal juggernauts of the Christian right. He has uh, endorsed in his speeches what they, he said, 18th century values. Let's remember 18th century uh, values did not include equality for women. It included uh, legitimation of slavery and things like that. This is a movement. He's a product of the Christian nationalist movement. And all of his, he, you know, is an anti-abortion extremist. He doesn't believe in gay marriage or anything like that. Um, and all of these extreme positions are really outside the norms of how most Americans feel on, on these issues. But they're not just a set of disparate policy positions or ideas. They are part and parcel of the Christian nationalist movement. The connection here is that this is a movement that put Trump in power in 2016. The Christian nationalist movement is not just a set of ideas. It's not just um, a, an ideology or or uh, a feelings or a uh, that that millions of people sort of happen to endorse or culture war positions they happen to endorse. The, the Christian nationalist movement is a, a political machine that has a dense organizational infrastructure consisting of many of the policy groups and legal groups that Mike Johnson worked in the service of. Trump knows very well he would not have won without their support in 2016. He courted them actively. He promised to appoint you know, what he called pro-life judges, meaning judges who not just want to end you know, this one medical procedure, but believe in a whole, you know, that whole laundry list of, of, uh, of positions that the religious right wants. And he's deeply authoritarian. You know, they often, leadership of that movement often compared Trump to a, a King David or a King Cyrus, an imperfect ruler through whom God chose to enact his will. Now, here's the thing about kings. They're not kings of democracies. They don't have to follow the law. They are a law unto themselves. And that makes them perfect rulers for a movement that simply doesn't believe in, a, in, in, in democracy or equality, or frankly, uh, the rule of law as it, as it should apply to them. So what's the connection then, Catherine, between, we know that there's a murky connection between Trump and Putin, and it appears that Putin owns him, or at least Trump defers to Putin. But what's the connection with Mike Johnson? Why is he doing Putin's bidding? It's surprising, but a lot of religious right, you know, there's been a sort of connection between Russian activists, uh, uh, sort of authoritarian would be authoritarians and and uh, religious right leaders going back decades, um, uh, going back to the days of Paul Weirich and the New Right. Paul Weirich made a number of visits to uh, Russia to make common cause and sort of implement a kind of uh, uh, favorable attitudes toward more right wing economic policy. Other. Uh, religious right leaders have also collaborated with uh, some of the oligarchs. If you think about people like Brian Brown or Alan Carlson or some of these other folks who have been involved in this organization called the World Congress of Family, they're supporting what they call a pro-family agenda, but they're actually making common cause with a lot of the oligarchs uh, and their lackeys in, in Russia and also in other parts of the world. So that alliance is longstanding and it's really quite surprising. I thought it was really disgraceful that Tucker Carlson went over there 
you know, and said some of the things, some of the horrible things that he said. Uh, and uh, but but it doesn't surprise anybody who's a longtime observer of this movement. So let's talk about the chief justice in Alabama and this bizarre ruling on frozen embryos, which has even blown up in the Republicans' face because it's sort of divided the anti-abortion world and Trump's followers, and even Trump himself had to weigh in. And of course, that the village idiot in the Senate, Tommy Tuberville, uh, the Alabama uh, senator, uh, he had to kind of reverse himself, although he, <laughs> I don't think he knows what he's saying in the first place. But what this, to me, is all about, and it ought to be evident, this is just a stalking horse for fetal personhood, isn't it? Isn't that the the Christian nationalist, uh, dominionist's aim, is absolutely, ultimately absolutely. fetal personhood? Absolutely. Yes, I mean, Alabama Chief Justice Tom Parker wrote uh, in his opinion that frozen embryos, quote, um, you know, quote here, cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God who views the destruction of his image as an affront to him. This is not, frankly, even Christian theology. There's nothing in the Bible about embryos. Uh, it's actually a very recent and extreme variety of, of theology that calls itself Christian, but it's really uh, a, a consequence of the what they call the pro-life movement, which has actually changed the theology in order to conform to a political agenda. It really shows that they're not just stopping with one uh, with with one uh, procedure with abortion IVF. This stuff is is one piece of a pie, you know, opposing IVF and and also I have to add many of the most popular and effective forms of birth control, and it's all about controlling people's rights. That's dominionism. But my understanding, frankly, is that Tom Parker is a fairly popular figure in Alabama, which really tells us something very important, which is that these extremists have a significant following in red states especially. And we may think their views are beyond the pale. And of course, there are a lot of Republicans who are going to have a problem with it, but their views are popular and shows that a lot of people are, are frankly on board with this agenda, unfortunately. And he believes in this, the idea of these seven mountains that have to be conquered. Absolutely true. The idea of the seven mountains that, that Christians of the right variety, not just everyday Christians, not just, you know, your Christians who go to a, a Presbyterian or, uh, you know, a Congregationalist church, but uh, a certain kind of reactionary uh, Christians should be in control of the seven mountains or molders of culture, which they, uh, amongst which they include things like education, the media, government, um, uh, things like that. So they they really think that you know they want uh, you know their folks to be in control of the the key drivers of society and politics and culture, which uh, they cast as quote taking dominion back from Satan. A lot of the ideology of Seven Mountains Dominionism goes back to a fellow named C. Peter Wagner, who drew on a, a he was a, a professor at a Fuller Theological Seminary and a big sort of uh, architect of the church planting movement, that is a movement of different religious organizations to put different churches in different areas, even though they're united by a sort of common theology and common practices. And he also you know, drew from a lot of different, his own different influences. He spent uh, uh, quite some time in Latin America. 
but he had this idea of the seven mountains that he drew also with the help of some other, some of his other fellows. And he, you know, believed in the reality of demons and, and Satan and, and taking territory back from Satan. So sometimes you hear language coming from people like Paula White. You remember her? She was mm -hmm. uh, a close ally of, of Trump. And she, you know, at one point gave a prayer in which she prayed for the abortion of satanic pregnancies. Well, she wasn't really talking about abortion. She was using the language and rhetoric of this kind of um, seven mountains dominium dominionist type religion. Well, just in the last few minutes there, Catherine, how do we counter that? How do you expose Mike Johnson, who is obviously he's meeting on Tuesday with the President Biden in the White House, along with the leaders of the Senate and the minority leader of the House. He, so far, Biden has not met with him, and I don't understand why Biden would want to meet with him. The first thing that Biden should say to this little Christian character is, why am I meeting with you? You don't think I'm even a legitimate president, that Donald Trump should be sitting here in the Oval Office, not me. I mean, it's just the whole thing is so absurd. And on top of that, I don't understand why they don't, the Democrats and, and the White House don't talk to religious people and say, you know, these people like Mike Johnson are violating the first of the Ten Commandments. Trump has become an idol for Christ's sake. Right. Well, there's a huge faith outreach uh, in, you know, the Democratic Party as soon as, as far as I can see. Uh, but more to the point, there are a tremendous number of faith leaders, uh, Christian leaders, some evangelical, some who are members of other uh, movements or denominations who are absolutely opposed to religious nationalism in our country. They talk about it not just a, as a violation of our democracy, but it's also as a violation of the way in which they understand their faith. There are so many uh, groups doing work to sort of bring the truth to light. And, you know, when you ask what can be done, there are infinite avenues for engagement. We can't meet our challenges until people know what they are. So I think getting the word out is incredibly important. I think there's nothing, no substitute for the vote. It's not important not just to vote in national elections and also in local elections, but to engage with others who might feel disenfranchised and tell them why they their vote really matters and why democracy matters um, to, I think, you know, getting involved in protecting the vote um, engaging in campaigns to reach out to others, um, sign up new voters, uh, get people on our side. I mean, local engagement is also incredibly important. I think it's important to get involved in your school community or, or in local governance. Um, we need to help people understand that, you know, the Republic is ours if we can keep it. Well, I sure hope they do something about idolatry because the Trump movement is a cult, not unlike Scientology and these other cults. It's just all about this one man who acts as if he is a god and wants to be treated both as a god and a king. And it's also un-American, but we will see what happens this year. I thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much, Ian.
And again, I've been speaking with Catherine Stewart, who's a journalist whose recent work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Guardian. She's the author of The Good News Club, The Christian Rights Stealth Assault on America's Children, and her latest book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And The Power Worshippers are the basis of the new feature documentary by Rob Reiner, God and Country. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into today's Supreme Court hearing on Net Choice versus Paxton, at which the justices seem to be open to the challenge from big tech companies, Facebook, Google and Twitter, to the Texas and Florida laws aimed at regulating their social media content. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jonathan Taplin, an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, who has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Vim Vendors, Gus Van Sant, and many others. He was the founder of The Entertainer, the first streaming video-on-demand platform, and currently sits on the boards of the Authors Guild, the Americana Music Association, and has produced 12 films, including Mean Streets, The Last Waltz, Under Fire, and To Die For. He's the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy, and his latest book is The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Taplin. Good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And in today's Supreme Court hearings on net choice versus Paxton, Paxton being the Attorney General of Texas, it appears that the Supreme Court is open to the big tech companies' challenges to the social media laws from Texas. But isn't this one of the situations where they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't? Because Paxton himself the law that Texas passed a while back is essentially a, a typical right-wing law about moving the goalposts to the right, arguing that somehow conservatives in this country are not getting a fair shake. And, you know, I mean, the idea that there's not enough conservative contact on, on the Internet is absurd, given the nature of who owns X, formerly Twitter. So what's your take on this? Well, look, I don't agree with the basis of the Texas lawsuit. But on the other hand, I think what the tech companies are asking for is an extension of something that you and I have talked about a lot, which is what I call safe harbor. In other words, the tech companies are saying that everything that happens on their platform is protected by the First Amendment. So if, in their view, if somebody puts up a fake video of Joe Biden falling down the stairs or stammering or freezing or something, they don't have to take that down. And that would, of course, please Elon Musk no end. You know, in other words, they're asking for complete protection. They already have 
a, a protection that no other company in the world has, which is a liability shield. You cannot sue Facebook for saying, for instance, that the election was uh, the election machines done by any one of those companies, Dominion or others, were uh, changing votes. You know, you can sue Rupert Murdoch for $750 million for saying that, but you can't sue Facebook. Now they want even more protection by saying essentially everything they do is protected by the First Amendment. So while I don't agree with Texas's point of view, which was there needs to be more conservative speech on and, and that there's some kind of weird uh, stigma against conservative speech on, on the Internet platforms, which, you know, the facts just prove that's not true. Facebook is basically a conservative Internet session and certainly uh, X known as Twitter, is filled with right-wing trolls. So, you know, um, but I'm just worried that these companies like Facebook and X have been unregulated for years, and now they want even more protection. So in other words, if the Supreme Court justices strike down the Texas law, they will, in effect, prevent our ability to control our own future using democratic means. Exactly, exactly. They will, there will be no way that we can regulate what Elon Musk chooses to put up on the X platform. There's no way to keep him from putting total fiction on these platforms and using it as a complete propaganda um, mechanism for other autocrats. Um, so I, I think it's a very dangerous situation. And I think we have to put out of our mind who actually brought the case. You know, Paxson is an idiot, but that doesn't mean that the basic idea that we ought to be able to regulate speech on the internet is not wrong, you know, especially speech, which is inflammatory. And as Justice Holmes said, you know, shouting fire in a crowded theater, which is what happens every day on X. Right. Well, uh, Paxton may be an idiot, but he's also a sort of major right wing Christian hypocrite and his own Republicans in the state of Texas recently tried to impeach him for his outrageous behavior. Uh, he's been in, under investigation since day one for securities fraud. So my concern would be that if you allow the Texas law to stand, how much damage does that do? Uh, you've made a case for why letting the big tech companies win would be a catastrophe. What happens if the Texas law stands? So what would Paxton do? Say that there's not enough um, Nazi speech on X? Uh, well, I, I think he'd have a hard time proving that. You know, I mean, what does he want? More right-wing propaganda? It's already filled with it. So, I mean, and he's certainly not going to say, uh, come in on the side of the liberals and saying it's, it's, there's too much 
hate speech on Twitter. Come on. You know, so, I mean, look, uh, I, I, I have a hard time seeing how this plays in the state of Texas. But what I do know is if it sets a precedent, if the Supreme Court says that everything that is put out on the internet is protected by the First Amendment is nonsense. You know, it's not everything that's in the New York Times is protected by the First Amendment. New York Times has been sued for libel hundreds of times, but you can't sue Twitter or, or Facebook for libel. So, I mean, essentially what you're saying is these people should have complete freedom to rule the largest communications platform in the world. Right. And last fall uh, here in California, the tech companies prevented a law going into, into effect where a federal court struck down a California law, which is supposed to protect uh, these social media companies from profiling children. So, right. But nevertheless, every day, some 95 million pictures are posted on Instagram, along with 34 million videos on TikTok, and not to mention millions and millions of tweets. So is that the problem, Jonathan, that there's so much stuff pouring out that that they can't deal with it. On the other hand, I've noticed that these big tech platforms who say, I'm sorry, we can't moderate content, they do prevent pornography largely, yeah, don't they? Of course they can moderate content. You know, I mean, they haven't spent billions on artificial intelligence then to all of a sudden decide they don't want to use it to moderate content. I mean, it's nonsense. You know, the artificial intelligence is used and has been used on Facebook for five to seven years to prevent pornography from being posted on Facebook. In other words, if you upload a piece of porn to Facebook, a piece of artificial intelligence sees the bare breasts and shunts it into another queue for a human to look at it. And 95% of the time, they throw it in the trash. It never gets posted. So, I mean, these are these people are evil. Look, I, and, and by the way, it's not just the platforms. There was an article in the New York Times this week which said that thousands of mothers are posting, are creating accounts for their 11-year-old girls to go on Instagram in the hope that they will become influencers. And so the girls go on Instagram, they're 11-year-olds in scanty bikinis or whatever, clothing, tights and stuff like that. And who's the audience for this? A bunch of middle-aged pedophiles. And they are actually to the point of charging for the videos of these girls. These mothers are essentially pimping their daughters for money in the hopes that their daughters will become big influencers and make money for them for years to come. Uh, and it's, it's outrageous. And of course, Facebook knows this is happening. Facebook knows that, you know, you're not supposed to have a, a Facebook account unless you're 13. And yet they're allowing mothers to open these accounts in their daughters' names. And, and I mean, the whole thing is appalling to me.
So how does this play, though, in terms of states' rights? Because that's what's at issue here, right? Whether the state has a right to regulate content well, on the look, platform, on these platforms. We are we are entering an age where, if you believe an article in Politico this week, the agenda of the Trump administration in its second term is to use federal power to regulate abortion, guns, auto emissions, everything. And that states like California would be essentially told they can't ban, you know, AR-15s. They can't um, deal with pollution have, or have tough auto emissions laws. We're going to see a, ch a chance where progressives for the first time in my life are going to be asking for states' rights. And this is going to be the essential battle of the next four years um, between Gavin Newsom and Donald Trump, if, if God forbid, Trump actually becomes president. You know, and right, but but there's a difference between Gavin Newsom's view on states' right and the governor of Alabama, for example. Yeah, but the governor right. of Alabama is totally in alignment with the people who want to ban abortion nationally. The governor of Alabama is totally in alignment with the people who want to have a national open carry law. The governor of Alabama is totally in alignment with you know, Johnson at, at in the House of Representatives or or whoever, you know, Steve right. Miller, who's going to be running policy in the White House. You know, I mean, he has, there's not an ounce of difference between what the governor of Alabama or Paxton wants and what Donald Trump wants. The big difference will be the difference between what Gavin Newsom wants or the governor of you know, Kathy Hochul or, or or the governor of Oregon want and what what the national, you know. What Trump wants. Yeah. So still, though, just to sort of wrap this thing up here today, because I suggested in the beginning sort of a damned if you do and damned if you don't, uh, in the sense that you, you certainly don't want the right wing sort of takeover the, of the Internet or complete immunity. You don't want the Texas law. Is there any way you can split the baby here um, i don't i don't see it uh, right. i i think in fact i would and have been saying for years that the thing that needs to be done is to repeal section 230 of the communications decency act which is the act that gives them immunity from being sued because if if they had actual financial penalty for posting stuff that was not true, then they would really figure out a way to moderate their their content. You know, because if they could be sued for defaming people or or whatever, uh, or for posting, you know, deep fakes that were not that were, you know, total lies, um, then they they'd figure it out really quickly. Right, you know, right now they say it's too hard to do, but it's not. Well, what's extraordinary, though, you, when you talk about Section 230, where they essentially saying we're not publishers, the advocacy groups funded by Facebook, Twitter and Google that are bringing this case to the Supreme Court today 
are essentially arguing that they have a First Amendment right to remove whatever they want from their platforms for any reason in the way that the editor of the New York Times might feel they have to get rid an article. So I, Don't they see the contradiction? It's, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Right. Well, nobody ever accused... Uh, Elon Musk of being able to talk out of both sides of a mouth. It's huh. it's it's the nature of his business, and the same with Mark Zuckerberg. Right, and and worth noting that these big tech companies, uh, internet companies, are the ones that are putting the media as we know it out of business, particularly totally. the, the print media. So, totally. <laughs> so I mean, they're just were, stealing the New York Times blind and everybody else. Two hundred thousand. Reporters have been laid off in the last two years. Well, you know. so is this coming up today, by the way? I didn't hear any of it, any of it from any of these Supreme Court justices who, again, seem pretty predisposed to accepting big That's tech what the arguments. That's Times reported. They, 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 it seemed like the, the Supreme Court was going to come down on the side of big tech, which is shocking. Right. And... Once that happens, what does that mean? It means they've got free reign to do whatever they want. And, you know, my sense is that AI and disinformation are going to be a, a hurricane that is going to meet this election in the next few months in a way that you will never be able to believe anything you see or hear on any one of these social media platforms. It will just be flooded with crap, which was, of course, Steve Bannon's great right. notion. If you flood the zone with disinformation, no one will believe anything, and so someone like, like Trump can win because right. no one will believe that he's a crook. Right. Welcome to Vladimir Putin's America. Exactly. I thank you for joining us, Jonathan Taplin. My pleasure, Ian, always. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Taplin, who's an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, who has produced music and films for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Vim Vendors, Gus Van Sant, and many others. He's the founder of The Entertainer, the first streaming video-on-demand platform, and currently sits on the boards of the Authors Guild and the Americana Music Association, and has produced 12 films, including Mean Streets, The Last Waltz, Under Fire, and To Die For. And he's the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. And his latest book is The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires are selling a fantasy future of the metaverse, Mars, and crypto. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at the recent gathering in Miami of powerful leaders, investors, and celebrities sucking up to the head of the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, who doles out $70 billion a year to obsequious panderers like Jared Kushner and Steve Mnuchin.
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Savag Kakishian, who is a senior researcher at Democracy for the Arab World Now with more than 20 years of experience in designing and executing research projects including on human rights in Gulf countries. He was previously Amnesty International's lead researcher on Saudi Arabia and he's worked on human rights violations in Yemen, Qatar and Oman. Welcome to Background Briefing. Savag Kishishian. Thank you, Ian. So, Savag, what do you make of the meeting or conclave or conference that took place in Miami? Uh, it's described in an article by Jonathan Geyer at the American Prospect as Davos in the desert on the coast. Yeah. But it essentially had all kinds of prominent Americans like former Secretary of Treasury Larry Summers, former White House advisor Jared Kushner, uh, all kinds of top American investment funds and firms and, and hedge funds like Blackstone and Accenture and Peter Thiel's Capital, etc., all obsequiously sucking up to the head of the Saudi public investment fund who is there representing his boss, Mohammed bin Salman. So, I know we've seen this kind of obsequiousness before and this naked kind of avarice, but this year it seemed to be absent of any sense that Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for the murder and dismemberment of Khashoggi, which of course back in 2018 at the summit in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, businessmen shielded their name tags from view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. So he's been, that's it, it's all, forget about it, right? That's what Jared Kushner said recently when the press asked him about yeah. that. He said, said, oh, are we, are we still talking about that? Yeah. Yeah, well, you're talking about it, I'm talking about it, and uh, it needs to be talked about, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's unfortunate, Ian, that, you know, this has sort of, uh, Mohammed bin Salman has been completely rehabilitated, uh, all thanks to, uh, the Biden administration, uh, ironically, who, you know, remembering Biden, who came to power saying he's going to treat the Saudis as pariahs and that his uh, counterpart is not MBS and the king, etc. I mean, all of that ended um, for for unjustified reasons, I think, and and even uh, unwise reasons, which, which are the Abraham Accords. But in this case, it's basically... You know, a lot of the U.S. Um, business uh, community members and 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 others, you know, in the entertainment, in um, industry, in the in the music, in the sports industries, they've been uh, chasing Saudi money and hoping that the Khashoggi and other uh, affairs that were in the public domain sort of um, are forgotten about, so that they can basically then. Um, you know, chase the money, which is which is uh, what the Saudis are doing with their public investment fund, um, uh, which is you know close to seven hundred billion uh, dollar um, um, portfolio of investments or, or resources. So it's unfortunate. Uh, it's it's not surprising, um, but it's unfortunate, and it's going to continue to happen. Um, and but you said it, we will. Uh, not be silent. It's not just because of Jamal Khashoggi. It's because the ongoing what's going on in Saudi Arabia under uh, MBS and because of MBS, uh, it's horrendous. It's it's been I've been watching the country 
were working on it for 15 years and um and you know you know it's quite it hasn't been this bad so the saudi public investment fund doles out 70 billion dollars in annual investments right so that's what all these people were down there in, in miami yeah. hoping to get a piece of the action right and yeah. and they included all kinds of people <laughs> like yeah. uh, gwyneth paltrow for example who yeah. was there talking about how goop had built meaning for its fans and that uh, they were bringing more women to the capital table to fight the patriarchy. Well, my God, uh, yeah. <laughs> have, does she not know what's happening in Saudi Arabia? It's the most patriarchal country on the planet, and women are objects. And the kind of sanitization, though, you know, the conference it was yeah. held by the Future Investment Initiative Institute, which is a think tank that uh, Mohammed bin Salman set up himself, and the sessions were just complete platitudes like AI is going to change the world, climate is important, sports brings people together. I mean, please, what is this, reputation washing? How, how, how would you describe it? Yeah, it's absolutely, it's whitewashing. Um, I mean, and within its, you know, specific categories as well, sports washing, greenwashing, you know, all of these, it is image sanitation. It is basically laundering uh, the image of specifically Mohammed bin Salman as this, you know, supposedly visionary global leader um, who is leading humanity, not just the Saudis or Arabs or, or people in the region, but humanity towards the future is sort of guiding us towards this futuristic, you know, space and time where artificial intelligence and smart cities and uh, and and presumably uh, renewable energy, etc., are sort of the dominant uh, aspects of life, and um, and all that stuff. I, I mean, it's it's all image laundering, and a lot of it is is untrue, obviously. Um, but but money buys you a lot of things, and this is um, the immediate result of of that. Um, so yeah, unfortunately. Uh, people like Gwen Patro, I, I don't know if they realize how or they care how naive uh, they sound or even cynical they sound when they say this, especially to the Saudis, specifically also in this case, women activists in Saudi Arabia fighting for equal rights who ended up in prison, tortured, sexually abused under MBS. So it's, it's, it's quite uh, extraordinary that they would say stuff like this when they are just one key keyword search away from finding at least a lot of the uh, the reality that um, organizations uh, have been talking about, the ugly reality on the ground in Saudi Arabia. So, Savag Kishishian, yeah. tell yeah. me, what do you know about the Senate investigation currently underway into Saudi Arabia's public investment fund? And they're particularly focusing on uh, the Saudi takeover of the PGA tour. Sure, yeah, that's one of the interesting developments that came as a direct result of the Saudi Public Investment Fund trying to basically, practically, um, even if not sort of uh, um, theoretically, but practically uh, take ownership of the PGA Tour by being the main and sole investor. Um, now, that those discussions, well, that started last year. Prior to that, they were in a strong competition, PGA Tour and the PIFs on competition, live golf or LIV golf. And basically it was a sort of uh, trying to uh, push PGA Tour out in terms of 
billions of dollars being spent on on prizes and things and luring all the main golf players and so pga tour could not compete with liv golf anymore and, and the saudis and so they started negotiations and then last year the senate uh initiated uh, rightly so hearings about this tremendous attempt to take over a global institution a us-based global institution with so much uh, power, uh, in a sense, large following, um, a lot of golf enthusiasts around the world. So they wanted to uh, look into this, this sort of foreign influence of, by the Saudis uh, by trying to buy PGA uh, Tour. Now, the, invest the, the hearings uh, from day one tried to get Yasser Mayan, who was giving a talk this past week and, you know, was the governor of the of the uh, PIF, to come and testify, but he's refused. Um and even uh, the Saudis have tried to prevent their consultants, some of whom worked on the uh, on sort of promoting Saudi Arabia's LIV Golf or or the PGA Tour merger, etc. Uh, so their U.S.-based U.S. companies, consultants, you know, like the big names, um, they even uh, prevented them from uh, providing documents uh, to the uh, Senate and threatened them with legal action if they testified, uh, if they gave the documents um, that, you know, that they should probably anyway make public because they are lobbying on behalf of Saudi Arabia. Some of them have made some of these documents public, others have not. But the Saudis have gone to this extra mile of basically um, issuing a, a court order from Saudi Arabia that says any U.S. entity uh, working or any entity working for or with the Saudi PIF cannot produce documents uh, or information to, to, to the government of any country, including their own government of the United States, unless specifically authorized by the PIF, by the Saudi government, in other words. So imagine, um, um, so as Senator Blumenthal rightly uh, asked, is well, what are they trying to hide? If there's nothing to hide, why are they forcing U.S. businessmen and companies to violate U.S. laws just to protect them. So the hearing is ongoing. Uh, last month, we saw the heads of four uh, U.S. consulting companies uh, testify uh, at the subcommittee. Um, and it was clear that that's not going to be the end, that there are a lot of documents requested by the subcommittee that have not yet been produced. And obviously, without you know, it goes without saying that Rumayan continues to refuse uh, to um, you know, show up um, at the hearing or, um, or answer any of these questions. Um, right, so but it's, I, it's I recall uh, that the head of, for example, McKinsey and Company, who were one of the witnesses, they yep. were essentially asked, weren't they, by the senators, I mean, who are you loyal to, Saudi Arabia or the United States? Isn't that what it comes down to? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how, it's, 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 it's exactly a very legitimate way of looking at it. And you saw the answers. The answers is, well, of course, they're loyal to um, the, you know, the US government, but they're also, you know, they abide by the laws of all countries. Well, guess what? Saudi Arabian laws are not uh, the same type. I mean, there's it, these are not laws per se. These are dictates by specifically MBS who makes up the laws however he wants. So you can say that, you can hide behind that argument, but at the end of the day, and that's what Senator Blumenthal pointed out, in practice, what you're end, ending, if you if you give that answer, what you're end, what you're doing is basically siding with MBS against the U.S. laws. So, 
all of this obsequiousness that was on display in Miami at this uh, gathering of where everybody was, all of these top American hedge funders and representatives of, by the way, the media were there. They they boycotted the earlier ones because of uh, Shoji's murder and dismemberment. But CNN showed up, so did uh, Fox, of course, Bloomberg, uh, Wall Street Journal, etc. So, you know, and you, <laughs> I did mention one of the people with a handout for money for Hollywood was Rob Lowe. I'm not sure how much pull he has, but uh, there he was whitewashing the Saudis in uh, hope to get investment in the, in the movies. So is this going to work? I mean, is anybody really uh, holding Jared Kushner or asking him, how did you deserve $2 billion? And it was probably more, actually. Mnuchin, he was there at this conference. And how come you got a billion dollars from the Saudis? Pompeo was there, another member of the Trump team, asking for money. So do you think there's sufficient public outrage here? Or is this whitewashing working? Well, I mean, we called for an investigation with Kushner and Mnuchin um, because... You know, it's it's not that they've, they, as private citizens, they went and sort of got investment from Saudi Arabia, regardless of qualifications as investors. That's not the problem. The problem is that these people were in power at some point. And he was, Kushner specifically, was personally very close and exchanged WhatsApp messages with MBS and tried to protect him, uh, at, you know, when Khashoggi was murdered, etc. So then what type of... Uh, um, tip for tat went there you know what happened uh during these late night uh, video game sessions with, with kushner and mbs what did they discuss you know did he take other money or did he give them uh, uh you know confidential u.s information um so there are all these hanging questions that need to be investigated so in terms of the whether or not whitewashing is working Unfortunately, yes. The you know, there's there's a lot that's in the media. There's a lot in the world going on, and people obviously uh, media cycle the way it works, and people's attention span and their you know their concerns and all of this. Yes, over time, especially if there is all this positive news being bombarded of investment here, investment there, and all these influ influencers speaking positively of MBS, then yes, it's gonna it's gonna be forgotten. But unfortunately. Um, here it's not just the private sector it's it's the it's the it's the democratic us government government presumably that that um is unfortunately taking the lead in showing the private sector what sort of what to do which is basically uh, put that behind you and then if you have uh, things to gain from it in this case money then yeah by all means you know biden what he is doing is exactly doing the same he's whitewashing uh, in ways, unfortunately, that even the Trump didn't do. That Biden has what Biden has achieved, for the sake of this illusion of of the Abraham Accords, of of sort of trying to uh, even extend security guarantees, U.S. troops, to uh, defend MBS in his rule against presumably I don't know even if he's on his own people, uh, just so that they can get him to sign a, a normalization agreement with Israel. And and Saudi Arabia has not been in war with Israel. So I, I'm not sure what that achieves practically right. on the ground given their close collaboration in the first place. So the US government has a huge role to play in this. And yes, unfortunately where the money is everyone is going and will continue to go. So uh, but there will not be 
everyone will not be in the same, obviously, in the same boat. I mean, people like Dawn, uh, our organization and others, there are many, will publicly continue to speak up. Um, that we have, there is no alternative for us to do that. So just in closing, that Trump doesn't have the money to pay the half a billion fines that are being piling up now with interest uh, from these New York cases that he's lost. Should we watch this space in terms of who ponies up that money? Because the banks aren't going to do it. Even uh, Deutsche Bank's not going to do it. Who's going to post the bond? My bet would be it would be either Saudi Arabia or one of Putin's oligarchs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they like him. They want him back. So I would not be surprised. Um, the Saudis are willing and are invested in Trump. Um, and they know um, that they will get a lot of things um, when he, if he gets back to power. That's why they you know, gave Jared Kushner $2 billion. And that's why they treat uh, his people so, you know. And these are, the, by the way, just the money that we know that has been reported, right? We don't know what right. bags of cash if you know uh, have been transferred because who you know who keeps who can keep track of those so yes uh we should watch this space but i'm not sure uh you know they're gonna if they paid it they, they're gonna do it sort of on the table uh legally they'll probably do it under the table well Zavag kashishi and i thank you very much for joining us here today thank you Ian. thank you and again i've been speaking with Zavag. Kashishian, who is the Senior Researcher at Democracy for the Arab World Now, with more than 20 years of experience in designing and executing research projects, including on human rights in Gulf countries. He was previously Amnesty International's lead researcher on Saudi Arabia, and he's worked on human rights violations in Yemen, Qatar, and Oman. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.